0: Welcome to this webinar co-hosted by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, UI, and the Swedish Middle East and North Africa Network, SWIMENA. My name is Aras Lind, and I'm a Program Manager and Analyst with the Middle East and North Africa Program at UI. Today, we will be discussing youth identity, politics, and change in contemporary Kurdistan. As we all are aware of, the contemporary history of Kurdistan is marked by conflict and ethnic cleansing uh, under the Ba'ath regime. Uh, however, considering that the region has been autonomous for the past 30 years, uh, not much light has been shed on the current situation for the population and their socioeconomic conditions. And only a few weeks ago, pictures of stranded migrants on the border between Belarus and Poland, uh, many, of them from, many of them from Iraq and uh, the Kurdistan region and went viral. And this situation could perhaps seem a bit counterintuitive as the Kurdistan region often is depicted as a beacon of hope, sometimes even as a democratic role model in an otherwise authoritarian region. In order to better understand this situation, there is a new book, uh, an edited volume, titled Youth, Identity, Politics, and Change in Contemporary Kurdistan. And this book is perhaps the first of its kind trying to bring together perspectives from academic and non-academic experts working on issues related to Kurdistan. Uh, And it's my great pleasure to introduce our four panelists who all have contributed to the book. And for those of you who are interested, there's also a link to the book at the event site at ui.se. So with us today, we have Shivan Fazil, um, a researcher at the Middle East and North Africa uh, program at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, (SIPRI), Siobhan holds a Master of Science in Middle Eastern Politics from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. He's also one of the two editors of the book and we will be joined by the second editor, Bahar Basher, uh, in an hour from now, and I will introduce her when she is with us. We also have Megan Connolly, who is an independent researcher, and she received her JD from University at Buffalo two years ago. Um, her chapter in the book discusses the role of social media, youth organization, and public order in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. And last but not least, we have uh, Lana Askari, who is a teaching fellow at the University of Amsterdam, as well as a researcher with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the Netherlands. She holds a PhD in anthropology from University of Manchester, and based on her her PhD research and fieldwork conducted in Sleimani, Lana's chapter draws out how Kurdish youth reign and retain hope for the future through political engagement, despite their ongoing disappointment in Iraqi Kurdish parties. Her chapter focuses on how, in the aftermath of the fight against the Islamic State, Multiple new perspectives confronting uncertainty emerged through political engagement among youth in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. So welcome to all of you and also welcome to our audience who are listening on Zoom and Facebook. If you wish to ask questions to the panel, feel free to use the Q&A tab on Zoom or comment on Facebook. I will take in questions from the audience during the entire conversation. And if you are tweeting about this webinar, feel free to use the hashtag UIEvent. Shivan, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you very much, Aras. Thanks for having me again. I would start to give a very brief overview about the book and the purpose, and then I will hand back the floor to you. So in recent weeks, images of migrants stranded at the Belarus-Poland border have gone viral. Among them are thousands of Kurds, primarily youth from the Kurdistan region of Iraq, a peaceful and autonomous region in otherwise a troubled, conflict-ridden region. Similarly, a week after, thousands of students took to the streets across the Kurdistan region, demanding the reinstatement of their monthly allowances suspended in 2015, after the war against Islamic State started. A year ago, similar protests also broke out in the Kurdistan region's eastern part of the region that soon turned violent and eight lives were perished. With protests, mostly in their teens, set fire to the offices of the political parties and public administrations. In October this year, again, Iraqis went to the polls for the fifth parliamentary elections since they have resumed after 2003. The snap election saw a record national low turnout at 41%. However, the rate was the lowest in Slemaniya province at 37%, which also includes the province of Halabja and the special administrations of Garmian and Raparin. The lighter is where the Kurdish uprising in 1991 against Saddam Hussein's tyranny started, which led to the inception of autonomy in Kurdistan region, but it also leads in migration figures. These seemingly separate events, be it migration, student protests or political apathy and low turnout in elections are different aspects of the same phenomenon. A widespread disillusionment and despair among the region's youth especially those who grew up under the Kurdish self-rule in the wake of the 2003 US-led invasion of Iraq. Towards the ruling parties and the ruling establishment, the young people's resentment with the region's fraud political system has contributed to growing political apathy, fueling angry protests every now and then, while also convincing many others to emigrate through illegal and often dangerous routes in search for a life, a better life that's not found at home. So the book, Youth Identity Politics and Change in the Contemporary Kurdistan, was prepared in light of discussions around the role of youth in nascent democracies and post-conflict settings. Their inclusion is crucial to sustain peace and development in the Kurdistan region, in both short and long term. As these young people, as these young people represent the future of the region. Their participation in all aspects and spheres of life, social, economic, and political is vital for creating a genuinely democratic system where structural inequalities are eliminated, rule of law is restored, and basic freedoms are respected and protected by the governing institutions and the ruling elite in the Kurdistan region. Moreover, the book, specifically delves into the predicament of youth in the face of elusive prospects of finding employment after they graduate, which is prerequisite for their progression in life that starts with their family formation or families of their own. The drivers of youth discontent in Kurdistan is very similar to the drivers of youth discontent in Iraq, which we have seen it all too visibly in recent years. And they are mostly over economic issues, but they are also include perceptions of widespread corruption, nepotism, inequalities, and social injustice. The book also sheds light on amongst others, the opportunities for political participation and the use of social media by the young people for organization and mobilization, but also their views and interactions with civic culture and Kurdish nationalism. And the reimagination of gender and sexuality, amongst others. I will leave it there, but I would be happy to delve more into the book and answer any questions you may have. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Shivan. It's a truly a fascinating theme that is perhaps I would say under researched. A lot of the focus has been shared on other things, and. And not so much on, on this, I would say. Um, and also, as you mentioned, the situation on the border between Belarus and Poland really highlights the importance of this issue and, and kind of shows that, that um, we are perhaps not seeing enough what's going on in, in Kurdistan. Uh, could you perhaps say something, I mean, in your, in your perspective? I mean, uh, we know that people are, are, are leaving. There is a lack of inclusion, so to say, of, of the youth for, for the region's future, what would be the consequences for the region uh, if uh, the Kurdistan region of Iraq does, well, fail to include the young generation?
1: Well, in the immediate future, as we have seen in recent years, and particularly in the case of case of Iraq, the Kurdistan region has a youthful budge or youth uh, youth bulge that basically every year sees around 25,000 new graduates poured into the job market. But, regions, but the region's job market has not been able to keep up pace with the growing demand for jobs and employment. Now, before the economic crisis that started in 2015, with the consequences of war against IS and also influx of IDPs into the region, the policies of the Kurdish government was public employment in return for what you could say acquisitions or political loyalty. But since 2015 or even earlier, KRG and Baghdad have been in contestation about many issues, including region's budget share. So the KRG was forced to freeze all employment in public sector. Now, the private sector is the only opportunity that's left. But however, with insecurity and instability, but also monopolies and interventions by what you can call it politically embedded cronies in the private sector has not been able to grow or expand and create jobs for the region's middle class or new entrants into the job market, which are mostly young people, as I said, around 25,000 young new entrants into the job market. The consequences are, as I laid it down, it's between fight and flight. The fight will be through protest movement that are often violent and turbulent, as we have seen um, in the 2020s, December protests that also sprung up in the eastern part of the uh, of the region, in Soleimaniya. Within five days, it actually spread to the far-flung, mid-sized towns that are economically depressed, and actually, costed eight lives, and they were mostly in their in their teen ages. If that's not it, some people actually might choose the flight, uh, basically go into uh, looking for uh, immigration through routes that are uh, actually dangerous by sea, through Mediterranean and Aegean Sea, or as we have seen uh, in 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 the past month, through illegal migration. Uh, uh, basically, by by going into Europe through through Minsk or Belarusian route, but that's not going to be available for long. So, so the discontent has 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 manifested itself in 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 various ways, but that can be reduced to flight uh, or fight.
0: Thank you, and I'm sure we will talk more about consequences of fight and flight as well. Uh, throughout the discussion. We will come back to that. Uh, But now I would like to turn to Megan. Um, You wrote a chapter on the role of social media uh, in in the region. Uh, Please, uh, the floor is yours. Looking forward to hear your remarks.
2: Thank you so much, Aras, and and thank you uh, for inviting me to this book launch and uh, also to the editors of, of the volume for inviting me to contribute to this volume. Um, I'm going to go through a a couple of things in my talk and I'll try and keep it brief. Uh, Maybe I'll keep it too brief, I don't know. Um, But um, first I want to discuss why I wrote this chapter in the first place. There are a number of things that are going on in the Kurdistan region right now um, that uh, involving social media um, that are developing, accelerating quickly, um, particularly the wave of arrests that we've seen over the past several years involving uh, the arrest of social media users, online activists, and journalists. Um, Then I'm going to discuss the strategies by which the Kurdistan regional government has sought to regulate online speech. And here I'm going to primarily discuss its litigation strategies, which is um, something that perhaps some people wouldn't expect from, uh, from this, uh, government, but which has taken on a, a primary, um, it, it has become a primary element of, of the strategy to a- attack dissent. Uh, and then third, um, I want, if I have time, I want to discuss the role of the international community, which is something that I didn't really address in the chapter, but I think it's important to discuss it. Um, so why is social media significant? Well, I think everybody knows that social media has become a primary method for political engagement throughout the world. Um, in the Kurdistan region context, you have about 80% of people who own a cell phone. Most people under 40 are connecting to the internet using their cell phone. Um, uh, most people are connecting to the internet, to social media in general, and communicating on social media. Um, you know, and one of the ways in which people engage on social media is through political expression. Um, so why, in, why is this an important topic in the Kurdistan region? Well, I think to understand why it's important, you have to understand the political context of the Kurdistan region, which um, this, since its establishment in the early 1990s, has been a very highly regulated civil society. Um, It has been controlled by two main political parties, the Kurdistan Democratic Party and the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. Um, Aside from territorial control, uh, that they 've exerted over their um, over their separate once separate governments uh, which became integrated in two thousand and three um, they have also exerted control over the government bureaucracy so they 've superimposed their party structure over um, over the government bureaucracy, which has also meant um, you know creating institutions to regulate the establishment of NGOs, the formation of unions, um, including student unions, um, other types of uh, civil society expression is really annexed to uh, government and party organs. So there isn't really a lot of, or or there hasn't been a lot of space for political expression independently of those parties before the, the advent of the internet and the emergence of social media as a uh, form of political expression so social media uh, and you know I there was a book published recently um, and I'll put it in the chat at some point uh, that goes into how extensive the uh, media regulation was prior to um, 2007 and actually it you know continues to be but uh, so social media gave um, civil society a platform to sort of rise above this uh, party bureaucracy, this government bureaucracy, and organize independently of that, um, express itself politically independently of that. Uh, It also gave it a way to exert pressure on policymakers. Um, As most people know in the Kurdistan region, the most significant policymakers are unelected. So the only way that you can exert pressure on them is through direct pressure, through censure or, um, or praise or criticism and this gave a way. Uh, this gave people a way to do that, um, you know, publicly, um, to censure their political leaders, to discuss policies um, in a way that would exert pressure on policymakers. Um, and it was also a way for policymakers to interact directly with their constituents. Um, most Kurdish political leaders have Facebook pages. They have the, many even have their numbers, uh, their cell phone numbers, on their Facebook page. You can call them. Um, their DMs are open, so it is a way for policymakers and constituents to interact with each other. Um, the problem this presents, of course, is that um, you know the the Kurdistan region political system, um, you know, and I think we should characterize it for what it is. It's not an emerging democracy. It's not a democracy. It is really, it always has been a type of competitive authoritarian regime. The democratic institutions that are in place are. Uh, or at least, you know, institutions that are facially democratic are in place to sort of um, reinforce uh, the incumbent political parties. They're not there to enable an exchange of power. So any type of democracy um, that exists in the Kurdistan region exists with this assumption in mind. Um, So the problem that social media presents is that because it allows this sort of open process of political engagement, it does open the possibility that the leadership could be challenged in a way that could pave the way for elections to um, change the the power dynamic. So the Kurdistan Regional Government has taken steps to um, address this issue. Um, primarily through, um, recently through litigation. Uh, Kurdistan region has um, a number of laws that uh, support, ostensibly anyway, support freedom of the press, support freedom of organization. But what does that mean ultimately? Um, The Kurdistan region has a journalism law which guarantees the rights of journalists to operate openly and freely and to uh, engage in, the, in their profession without being arrested and charged with a crime. Um, however, you know, the, the definition of what constitutes a journalist is very narrow. Um, you know, they, the judges will ask, is the defendant a member of the journalism syndicate? Well, the journalism syndicate is, is a union that's established by statute. Um, and that's regulated by statute um, and is staffed primarily by the political parties. So this isn't really a you know a great advocate for independent journalists. Um, it will also ask you know the court will also ask whether the, the defendant works for a reputable and certified publication. Well, if you're publishing a soap on social media, that might be questioned. Um, whether a journalist acted in the capacity as a journalist. Well. Um, I include a quote in the book from Dindar Zabari, who's the international advocacy advocacy coordinator for the Kurdistan Regional Government, who essentially says that if you're criticizing the political parties, that um, you're not really acting in your capacity as a journalist. So um, if you don't fall within this, the the definition of a journalist, then your crime might constitute one that is punishable by um, the misuse of electronic communications devices act which is uh, crimes under this act are punishable by up to five years in prison. Um, and a I believe a fifty the uh, 500,000 dinar fine, um, I, I, I will check that. Um, but this is a act that was passed primarily to address the phenomenon of honor killings, which parliament attributed uh, and many policymakers attributed to the uh, sharing of indecent Photographs of women online and harassment of women online, um, and in many ways, it, it you know, a legislative response to this was necessary, but it has been used instead. Article two of this law has been used to um, prosecute journalists uh, and social media users uh, for defamation, and this is the law in which um, in 2019 and 2020 you saw. Um, many journalists and activists, uh, there were over 70 journalists and activists that were arrested, many of them were charged under this particular statute, uh, including um, Bad el-Barwari, who was a, um, and I'll use his case as an example, uh, he was a teacher in Duhok. Uh he was an activist, uh, as Siobhan mentioned, the Kurdistan regional government stopped paying civil servant salaries or was paying them intermittently for a long period of time. He had organized protests uh, to to resist this, to pressure the government to uh, begin paying salaries to civil servants again on time and uh, in full. And he was arrested, he was charged under this law. Um, He was acquitted by a Duhok criminal court. The Duhok criminal court um, interpreted the law within the the context of international human rights treaties that Iraq is a signatory to. But um, notwithstanding his acquittal, his case was transferred to the Erbil court where he was charged with, um, and this is a new phenomenon that I only briefly touch on in the book. Um, He was charged under a national security statute, um, which, is in the Iraqi penal code and was amended for um, uh, the Kurdistan region uh, legal system. Uh, and he was charged with espionage, essentially. Uh, he was not convicted uh, under the statute. He was charged under a, another statute in the Iraqi penal code, um, with gathering with the intent to commit a felony or misdemeanor or to prevent the implementation laws of laws, regulations, or decisions to influence the affairs of the public authorities or to deprive another of his freedom is the language in that statute. And after serving approximately two years in prison awaiting trial, he was released with time served um, after being conv- uh, convicted of IPC section 222 and uh, sentenced to a year in prison. So. Badal Barwari has been released. Um, He is finally free after being arrested in August,
3: 2019.
2: Um, But you can see that the, the example that this sets, um, even if you're acquitted, you could still do two years in prison. Um, So the goal of this, from what I can discern, is twofold. One, to punish political opponents. Um, And there have been several, um, political dissidents and social media users sentenced under these these defamation laws and more recently the national security laws, Um, but also to chill and deter protests either through the threat or possibility of punishment or by making it procedurally difficult to engage in political expression. So um, one of the um, uh, bills that was considered by the Kurdistan region parliament Was a bill to very much like the original press law, which was repealed by the journalism law that I that I had spoken about, um, basically to register social media users with the Ministry of Culture, and to punish violations of that social media law under the terrorism law, which is another uh, law that was passed by the Kurdistan Region Parliament back in 2006. So. Clearly, the Kurdistan Regional government has begun to consider um, social media regulation as a um, as an aspect of national security rather than as a um, as an issue of just social regulation so um, we, we're still looking at a number of trials that are upcoming on both article two and um, the national security statutes. Um, and you know, we can expect cases where like in, in February, several um, dissidents who were posting um, critical information online were convicted under the national security statutes. Um, in those cases, it was also alleged that they had conspired with um, international agencies such as the American Bar Association and the German and American consulates. So that's where I get to my third topic, which is the international involvement and the responsibility of the international community. Um, There has been, with the trials of these dissidents, um, you know, for, for posting online content that's critical of the government, you have seen the UN, the EU, the German government come out and say, this is unacceptable. This is contrary to the very concept of the rule of law. Um, It's in violation of human rights. Um, These trials are procedurally uh, not only flawed, but they are completely, they're they're a mockery of justice. Um, I think the the German government went so far. Um, But also, I think that you've seen another reaction, which is not much at all from the major uh, backers of the Kurdistan regional government, which are the United States and the UK. Um, and here you see the um, statements from both governments that, uh, you know, we support freedom of the press, but, you know, and we, uh, we support the work of journalists, Um, The UK government has uh, provided funds and um, workers to train judges, for example, um, citing the fact that there might be issues with understanding um, problems presented by the media and social media. But I think that this is really uh, very flawed. And because the issue is not that the jurists and policymakers in the Kurdistan region don't understand media issues, that they don't understand social media, that they don't understand the law uh, regarding these issues. Um, as a matter of fact, many of the policymakers and judges were trained in you know, uh, universities like Harvard and Oxford. Um, they have a thorough understanding of Iraqi law and international law on these issues. Uh, that's not the case, they need training the issue is what the Kurdistan Regional Government regards as the appropriate place for the press and media and engagement of civil society. And um, this is where um, this is where the international community can perhaps uh, play a role in really uh, explicitly, defining what that is and how that needs to change in the Kurdistan region for democracy to become consolidated. Um, the issue needs to publicly be raised that the judicial system is tainted, um, that procedures uh, used in, in courts and in trials contravene universally acknowledged standards of due process, that laws are being interpreted uh, to prejudice defendants in these cases. Uh, and responsibility needs to be taken for, uh, the international community's own contributions to, uh, securitization of the public space, uh, which is another aspect of this, um, by funding, equipping, and training security forces, and also by, uh, sup- by engaging with, uh, policymakers that are flagrantly violating the, the rights of, uh, of defendants in these trials and, um, uh, so, actually, I think that's where I'm going to end it right now, and maybe we can continue that in the Q and A. I think I'm over my time.
0: Thank you, Megan. It's it's a truly uh, very relevant uh, topics you're you're highlighting, and uh, it's a in many ways a worrisome development in the, in, in many senses. Um, and I also want to let uh, Lana like into discussion, but first, Megan, just a very quick question. I would like to. Uh, ask you if you have kind of identified, is there like uh, tendencies, I mean, you have described uh, the situation in terms of rule of law, etc. in in Kurdistan, but is there any, are there any tendencies among like youth people uh, seeing the problem and trying to address them and how are they they addressing it in, in that case?
2: Yeah, I think uh, that this has become one of the most salient issues in the Kurdistan region's political discourse. Is this use of of the judicial system to um, to attack dissidents to um, to essentially undermine the rule of law itself? Uh, I think the the youth are engaging in part through protest uh, and and on social media. I uh, you saw a lot of social media engagement during this bill that I mentioned, uh, that was uh, designed to regulate social media more uh, more closely. Uh, social media engagement actually stopped the passage of that bill. So it, there was a, a campaign, a hashtag campaign, to um, to force legislators to reconsider their their endorsement of it. Um, you also saw a huge social media campaign around, uh, the Badinan defendants, uh, which is, you know, I, I guess the hashtag for the, uh, for the activists and journalists that were arrested in the Badina region. So the er- Erbil and Dahuk areas, uh, provinces of the Kurdistan region, and a lot of awareness spreading because of youth engagement on social media, um to combat this use of the judicial system. So that's one way in which they are engaging.
0: Thank you. And uh, that's perhaps a good bridge also to to Lana to continue discussion on on how, well, uh, Kurdish youth uh, frame and retain hope, so to say. Lana, the first, yours.
4: Thank you so much, Adas. Yes, I think it continues quite nicely on your question about what do they then do in practice. Um, Before I begin, I would also like to thank Bahad and Siobhan for their effort in editing this book, uh, which has already proved to be very timely indeed. Um, And thank you, of course, to the Swedish Institute uh, for International Affairs uh, for hosting this webinar. Um, Before I start, um, just a small disclaimer that I'm speaking as an academic today and my views are my own, not of my employers. Um, And um, I was triggered actually by what Siobhan mentioned in the beginning, in the introduction about what youth in Kurdistan see as their future and their options. And it reminded me of one of my interlocutors during my fieldwork in 2015-16 what he said. He was um, uh, recently graduating from the University of Semani, And he said, actually, after graduation, there are only three options for us now. He said, the first one is that you leave for Europe. The second one or the third one, depending on your beliefs, is either to join the PKK or Daesh. And I think these three options that he mentioned really go delve big into that idea of that outside of the framework that exists in Kurdistan, there is nothing else. So if you want to leave that, these are the only options that you have. And all three of them are very extreme indeed, um, which also reflects um, yeah, the, the, the extremity of, of the situation of not seeing any potential within, within the place that they grew up. Um, So, I think it is important to highlight that before I start. Um, So, my chapter in the book is based on the PhD research I did in anthropology and fieldwork, as I said, uh, conducting the city of Semani in 2015-16. And what I was seeing was a type of uh, apathy within the Kurdish youth towards politics and the normative Kurdish uh, political parties and structures. Um, And I want to understand, you know, I'm sure there's more behind this, so what is happening, actually? Um, As Siobhan touched upon as well, um, as we can see in many other Middle Eastern countries, uh, youth have been put in waiting because of dysfunctional regimes, war and conflict, economic hardships and crises. um, And they have not had the means to move on with their lives after graduations. There are no jobs or they need connections to get a job. Um, and this prevents them from establishing families or developing themselves outside of their social position as a student. They can actually not grow up, and, which is a big issue within society if you, you put that on hold. Um, and during my fieldwork, uh, I also felt that uh, Kurds in Iraq had the stigma of being the least political of all Kurds. Um, and in the chapter, I go into how the war against uh, uh, the Islamic State in the mobilization of Kurdish forces actually heightened this type of Kurdish solidarity and created new spaces for Kurds to imagine and work towards um, new social or political structures in Iraqi Kurdistan as well. Um, So let me begin with um, the situation at hand first. So many of the students I talked to, um, they chose not to only disengage from politics, but also actively disengage from political discussion amongst themselves at the time which is very, very strange to me at first. Um, They would say, you know, talking about it wouldn't lead to anything, it wouldn't change. Um, They would describe the topic as boring or um, they would often use the term uh, fisha, which is a Kurdish word to denote the surreal reality or the joke uh, that is their political or social predicaments. Um, So we also can see this happening in other countries, as I mentioned, Lebanon, Iran, where instead of trying to focus on the political issues, youth is trying to control things that are within their control and that they can actually change to better their lives or at least think of some sort of future for themselves. So these ordinary actions would focus on, for example, actually getting a degree, uh, finishing the education, working out in the gym, investing a lot in looks in clothes, you know, driving a nice car, uh, going out with friends, smoking shisha because um, these are the things that someone can control within their lives and the other things that are outside of that would be futile to even attempt that. Um, and of course, I have to say, this applies to middle and upper classes more than others, because not everyone has the means to do so. Um, now, interestingly, about five to six years ago, when I did my field fieldwork, um, there was a shift from this kind of previous political apathy that was centered around corruption, disappointment, etc. Um, there was also the economic crisis, um, but with the rise of the Islamic State and the revolution that was being held uh, by Kurdish parties in Northern Syria, a few events happened. As an example, I take the Battle of Kobani that happened uh, at the time. Um, and I think this really made a shift in the Kurdish imaginary where it created this type of political awareness, Some, in some cases, maybe even a transnational, nationalistic solid feeling of solidarity. Um, that opened up new spaces to think about uh, one's political and social predicaments. So I argue in this chapter that the war against IS and the mobilization of the Kurdish forces, it created new spaces for Kurds to talk about politics, but also criticize their own political structures uh, in comparison to that of of places where also Kurds were living in other countries. And these were centered um, not only on democracy and uh, socialism, but also on social inclusion, diversity and gender equality, of course. Now, I don't want to generalize about how everyone, all youth reacted to this in this period. Instead, I want to focus on how this period opened up multiple new perspectives on politics and how youth can overcome the uncertainty of living in a post-conflict area. Um, so uncertainty here, I mean, personal uncertainty about goals in life. Could I have a job? How am I going to provide for myself? Uh, but also on the macro level, uh, will there be a war again? Is this economic crisis going to be chronic and forever? Um, but um, the youth that I talked to, they engage in different modes of this type of understanding, um, um, how they can use the political engagement to overcome this uncertainty. So it's not that I'm saying that they all did the same thing. I'm just saying that this space was opened up and people were engaging in different ways um, to, to better themselves, to have different aspirations for the future, but also perhaps um, through this way to spread their chances uh, and f- trying to hold on to some form of hope. Um, so in the chapter, I focus on uh, two types of political engagement. Um, So first I explored social activism within civil society, so here we can see how Kurdish youth um, in that time started to really become active in civil society through the promotion of um, different peace gatherings, festivals, conferences, academic, cultural, um, that really promoted the multi-ethnic, multicultural and multi-religious makeup of Iraq. this opened up space for discussion but also to reflect on the past and also to understand what type of future they wanted to live and how the new generation could live within this. Now the second form of political engagement that I discussed in the chapter is a bit more extreme and it's an example of a Kurdish Riturni from the diaspora who was so engaged in um, protests um, that he also became engaged in a in, in, in militarized and a guerrilla fighter. Um, So I mentioned before that the liberation of Kobani was a big event, Um, it was appropriate by many people as a symbol of hope and resistance against a common enemy. Um, And I think this was very generative in that it it allowed for people to imagine, you know, different progressive social and political systems, Um, and also how Kurdistan could look like in a different way. And in this case, um, his political activism in the diaspora, protests and demonstrations led to his slowly becoming acquainted with the PKK, the YPG, um, and ended up in him becoming engaged in militarized action. Um, And what was interesting about this was it wasn't only about a type of hope for Kurdistan or a better world. It was also about bettering himself as a person, um, including gender equality, inclusion, and even queer inclusion uh, within seeing the Kurdish revolution as a, a path for which maybe other Middle Eastern uh, communities would also follow. Um, and more importantly, as I mentioned, it also allowed space for people to talk about um, and to criticize the normative political framework of uh, the Kurdistan region in Iraq in comparison to other ideologies. Now, um, while I only discuss two modes of engagement in the chapter that I put in the book, um, I put forward that individuals in, in Kurdistan, they inhabit multiple hopeful imaginations about their engagement, civic participation, or even activism, despite having the disillusionment about the political situation that, that they exist in. So this plays nicely into what um, an author Greenberg has coined the politics of disappointment, where student protest in uh, Serbia, um, in, in post Yugoslavian times they pursue different strategies of political action despite feelings of disappointment with their previous expectation of what they could achieve which is very enabling in a way that um, enables one uh, but it doesn't hold on to any utopian visions for the future so it rather pushes them um, and, and doesn't focus on what they have to lose um, and it's really interesting now to see how that previous political ap- Apathy of students has that where they were associated with has slowly turned into new political actions, uh, such as the university protests across uh, the Kurdistan region, which have been unprecedented in recent years, as Megan mentioned, because of growing fear, because of growing repression of freedom of speech. And I think it's really interesting how to see how these events of five, six years ago um, have played into the development of what is what. Kurdish youth and students are able to talk about now and are able to uh, think about for themselves in in terms of their own futures as well in the country. Um, and I think it is, on the one hand, as I mentioned, a very... Um, Uh, Let me say this, I don't think we should um, look at this uh, naively. I think these students or these youth are very aware of the disillusionment of their own predicaments. And that um, despite all of this, they are still trying to to make a change within the space that they have. And I think already coming from a point where even talking about these issues was not really something that was happening every day to a point where it is happening is already a big step. So I'm really interested in to see how this is gonna uh, grow further even. Um, I'm, I'm gonna leave it at that because it's already quarter to two, but um, yeah, thank you all for listening.
0: Thank you, Lana. It's a truly interesting work you've done. And, and uh, I must say I haven't read the book yet, but I'm really, really looking forward to it. So, so I'm sure it contains lots of uh, interesting material and I wanted to to raise the question about nationalism a bit uh because you're kind of semi touching it uh, throughout your presentation here and also i mean i want, would like to open to to Shivan and Megan as well to comment on this i mean nationalism for for the Kurdish people has kind of played an, a central role throughout the twin, uh, 20th century i mean both in terms of resistance against oppression but also as kind of a nation building uh ideology in a sense and, and uh, as Siobhan mentioned in, in the beginning, um, the youth in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, it's a generation who mostly have only like uh, read and heard about various forms of oppression. They have no own experience. Uh, perhaps the, the fight against IS in Kobani, for instance, is one way of a transnational, as you said, uh, experience of resistance, so to say. Um, What is the status for that kind of, I mean, I mean, would you say something a bit more on nationalism uh, in light of this uh, first down and perhaps also Siobhan?
4: Yes, thank you for that question. I think that's, um, I think what it boils down to is that um, what I wrote was absolutely time specific, right? So we have to look at it in the light of five, six years ago when there was this heightened feel and there was this push. And then we can look back now and say, oh, um, as with uh, the conflict in, and the war in Syria also prolonging, things change and things change also in terms of how we look at different actors that are there. So I think definitely the, um, the momentum that was, that was there at the time, that has definitely slowed down. But um, I do think there is still, it still had a big impact on the international community, the Kurdish diaspora, Um, in terms of finding one another, in terms of organising, in terms of um, perhaps also bringing that debate further. And I think, you know, social media is a great way to connect as well. The internet has allowed for this type of transnational um, uh, connections even more. And that's not something that's just going to go away. Um, So I think it might not have had the same status as it had at the time, the impact. Um, but the, the networks that were forged at the time, the relations that were forged, I think that definitely has made an impact and it will be really interesting to see how that continues, for example, also in the diaspora
1: or in Europe, definitely.
0: Sure, would you like to spin?
1: Well, I was I was thinking earlier about actually, if there is a point of end of history for Kurds of Iraq, where would that be? Um, and one can, and, and I, I'm, I'm borrowing that very famous thesis, the end of history. I think after 2003 and the removal of dictator Saddam Hussein, for many people it was like we have we are actually reached the end of history of tyranny and oppression of Saddam Hussein, and now we are we are free. And and the Kurdish leadership at the time, um, willingly or unwillingly, they have become part of the new Iraq, and they have been part of building uh, not only the new Iraq but also the political system and its institutions and foundations that we have now. In the Kurdistan uh, region uh, region of of, of of Iraq, but but then within the same time period, you have this generation who may have so you can call it Generation Z or uh, late millennials who were born in the late nineties who might have accidental memory of Kurdish civil war in the nineties, but for most part they have grown up under Kurdish self rule, and they are um, um, they are actually tired uh, uh, and had enough of hearing. Uh, the othering, or basically the Kurdish leadership externalizing uh, and exporting their responsibilities for its own failings. Uh, And for example, for many of this generation, actually, Baghdad is a very alien concept. Of course, they know it's a national capital and they are participating in national elections. uh, As I've uh, indicated in October, where we had the uh, fifth uh, national parliamentary elections, uh, but baghdad is a very uh, alien concept uh, they are expecting jobs security and services and uh, uh, opportunities in life from erbil or the kurdish government rather than baghdad and actually the same feeling uh, has been uh, the responsibility of this thinking is also lies on the kurdish leadership because for at every con- at every corner at every juncture where where they have had shortcomings they have blamed baghdad for their inability and even with the current state of affairs, as we have seen with the migration crisis, with the uh, with the student protests that has been raging in the past two, two weeks, uh, the inability to actually acknowledge and to see eye to eye uh, the sufferings uh, uh, of 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 this growing uh, uh, young pop- population is 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 an anabatic. Um The other aspect of nationalism, I would say, it's more kind of to do with uh, maybe great power uh, competition in the in the region, which has. Uh, regardless of how how of uh, of a, a good uh, state actor or non state actor you are, at the end of the day, it all comes down to um, to basically the great power competition. We have seen uh, after the battle of Kobani or the emergence of ISIS or in the context of the war against ISIS, the Kurds in Turkey, sorry, the Kurds in uh, in 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 northeast Syria, or now we call it Rojava, and in Iraq, and also to some extent in Turkey. All within the same five years, uh, where we had, for example, Hada passing the threshold of ten percent for the first time in 2015, and then the Kurds uh, carving for themselves semi de facto autonomy uh, in Syria. The Kurds in Iraq were again under national, international spotlight for their role in the fight against IS for being the boots of the uh, on the ground on behalf of the West. But when the when the war came to a close when the war came to a conclusion, uh, basically all things went back to to, to how they were. Uh, for example, we don't know yet what happens to this de facto autonomy that the Kurds have carved out for themselves, which has actually came at a very large cost, uh, but at the same time, they were fighting IS. They also built up this bottom-up kind of uh, political system. If you can say, of, if one can argue, is that the Kurds in Iraq might have overplayed their hand with the with the referendum that the international community asked them not to uh, go forward with it. But we don't. I don't think the Kurds in in Rojava have overplayed their hand. But still, the the West. Uh, is actually uh, kind of um, indifferent to, to to their contribution. So it all comes down to these great power contribution uh, competitions in the region, where, for example, states in the region, Turkey foremost, and then Iran, are not uh, not not tolerating another um, autonomous region in 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 the Middle East. I will stop there, but I would of course hope to um, to have uh, Megan also contribute to, to this discussion.
0: Uh, yes definitely thank you Shivan and Megan, please
2: yeah I think um, you know approaching this from the social media um, angle uh, I, I think that social media has really contributed uh, as Lana said as well to a, to the understanding of um, what it's, what it means what Kurdish nationalism actually means what kurdish what the Kurdish nation means um, Lana mentioned uh, contacts with the diaspora from uh, from the Kurdistan region. But I think also, you know, when you think of the political history of the Kurdistan region and the political geography, um, you know, for over uh, for over a decade, the Kurdistan region was not only politically divided, but physically, territorially divided between two distinct spheres of influence uh, under the KDP and PUK. It wasn't just a, an issue of, you know, you need to pass a checkpoint, but also um, these parties regulated and controlled their own media, their own governments, um, methods of communication within their own zones. So, you know, one of the things that I had heard from some of the activists in Badinan was that social media had enabled them to, um, to establish, to reestablish these links with their compatriots in Sleimani. That it had enabled enabled them to overcome this sort of mutual animosity that uh, and social division that had been um, cultivated by the parties and allowed them to sort of reimagine the Kurdish uh, the Kurdistan region as being socially united uh, as well as um, you know a a politically united polity. Uh, So there there is that as well. Um, you know, the other thing about social media was, you know, as Lana also said, it allows allow people to discuss these issues with their government online in a in a more open way. Um, and also, you know, drawing on, on this discussion of oppression, uh, a lot of the discourse that you're seeing online about uh, the Kurdistan regional government is comparing it to Um, you know, Rojava and also, but also, um, you know, like the Turkish government, uh, a lot of the discussion of the social media bill compared the social media regulation bill to similar laws that have been passed in Turkey. Um, You know, so this is the kind of, um, these are the kinds of experiences that are being drawn upon to sort of redefine the, the nationalist discourse and redefine what the nation actually is.
4: Can I add something really quick to that? I think uh, Megan made a really, really great remark just now, which was about the connections between um, youth from the different provinces in Iraqi Kurdistan, because we have to remember that not only have these people not really been in contact with each other, they also speak different dialects. and. I think it's really, really important now that this ha- is changing at the moment and we can see it in their engagement online, but we can also see it in the engagement of um, let's say exchanges, academic exchanges, uh, what have you that is trying to you know bridge, yeah, um, trying to overcome that that bridge that has been there for so long. So very important, I just wanted to reiterate. That.
1: Well, there I am going to jump on that as well. The same can be said also about the youth within the Kurdistan region of Iraq and with the rest of the country. As we have seen, the protest movements in in the rest of Iraq, in Basra, for example, has been raging since 2015 and most recently in 2019, which brought down the government of what was supposed to be a technocratic government of Adel Abdul Mahdi. So now with the social media and also different programs that are uh, that are in place with um, with the help of international um, development agencies and humanitarian organizations the youth in the kurdistan region which has of course had little to no contact with the rest of iraq for language barriers but also for the political reality after 1991 uh, also for the first time have started to discuss and interact with the youth in the rest of the country and they can see that they uh, their plights are very similar. They are facing similar challenges, be it social, economic, and and, and political. But a really excellent point that 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 was raised by uh, by Megan. Indeed. Uh,
0: thank you. And now I see that uh, Bahad Basha just entered. Are you with us, Var? Hi, Bahad. Good to see you, and most welcome. Uh, you actually entered in a very good time, and um, we are discussing lots of interesting issues and. Uh, The audience know that you uh, would arrive now, and and here you are. uh, Bahar Bashir, you're an associate professor at the School of Government and International Affairs at Durham University. And your expertise lies in diaspora studies and peace and conflict studies with a regional focus on the Middle East. And this is, I think, uh, very, uh, so to say, uh, timely considering where the discussion is right now. Uh, Bahar, please, uh, we'd like to hear your initial remarks.
3: Oh, thank you so much. Uh, first of all, let me start with apologizing. Um, I had a lecture that I couldn't cancel, so I was teaching on the Iran nuclear deal, and uh, now I have to switch back to Kurdish politics again. Uh, so thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, I'll, um, I don't know what my colleagues have discussed before me, but I, I would perhaps like to give an initial uh, idea about uh, how the pro- uh, book project come into being, if that's okay, Aras. Um, so um, I um, I am very happy that I worked with Shiwan on this project. Uh, it was absolutely a pre- uh, pleasure. Uh, the whole idea came up after I started uh, managing a large project funded by the Ferguson Trust. Um, that at that time the project was uh, based at um, um, Coventry University, and uh, the idea was to look at youth movements in five different settings, uh, post-conflict settings. This included Colombia, Afghanistan, Bosnia. Um, uh, Algeria and the uh, and, uh, Kurdistan region of Iraq. So we always try to um, locate these kind of discussions to a broader perspective, because what's happening in Iraq and Kurdistan at the moment is not just happening there. It's happening in different parts of the world. Um, so um, uh, the idea came uh, out uh, for the book uh, when Shiwan and I wanted to present uh, Kurdish uh, scholars, especially early career scholars, uh, opinions about how, uh, youth participation is taking place in the Kurdish, Kurdistan region of Iraq and uh, our idea was to bring together uh, people from different political backgrounds, from different walks of life um, to to comment on, on this and I, I'm very proud of the book because I, I think it's the, it, it's the bu- uh, first book um, um, as far as I know which dealt with this kind of issues and uh, I'm very happy that although I'm not uh, Kurdish myself, uh, this book uh, facilitated bringing out the Kurdish voice to a larger audience Outside Iraqi Kurdistan, and uh, we see that how um, um, how these issues are um, on the agenda of international politics now, I and mean, it will it will continue because whatever the youth is experiencing in Iraqi Kurdistan at the moment is uh, another reason that drives people out of Kurdistan um, to to the Belarus uh, Poland border, etc. So there are a lot of things to discuss. Um, so. Um, the, the book uh, i think will um, engender future debates on this issue and uh, i'm very happy that we we brought uh, two um, contributors of the book to this uh, book launch today uh, and they both had different perspectives and and uh, what what it showed us that people had a lot to say about uh, youth participation and because Uh, Maybe Shivan mentions many people who work on uh, the the KRG usually approach things from a security studies perspective or its de facto status or Iraqi politics in general. So um, I think uh, um, scholars neglected working on societal issues within the Kurdistan region. And I hope that this book uh, paves the way for uh, future research. So if you receive more questions, I would also like to um, talk about uh, youth politics uh, in general and how it's discussed in academia, but perhaps uh, the, the, the questions will give me an opportunity to do that. So I stop here now. Thank you. Uh,
0: thank you, Bahar. Um, yeah, so so I mean, uh, I'm, I'm skimming through other questions. I would also just want to remind the audience to, to ask questions if, if you. Uh, have any, but I mean I, I initially asked Siobhan th- this question and I want to ask it to you too as well, uh, so, so there's obviously a sort of a disengagement, political disengagement among the youth now in the Kurdistan region, and what do you see would be, could be at least, the, the kind of long-term consequences for that, uh, for the region?
3: Okay, thank you so much. Um, so I would say um, there is a youth disengagement, and uh, I haven't noticed it, for example, when I first visited the region almost uh, 10 years ago. So the dynamics are changing quite rapidly. And um, when I decided to work on this issue with Shivan, we, we conducted um a, a, Fieldwork, and uh, I, for example, conducted focus group interviews with young people. Um, and uh, she wanted it a, a couple of years ago, and we had the chance to compare as well. And uh, for me, uh, what I was seeing was incredible. So uh, ten years ago, when I talked to people, including university students, people were really proud um, to see the the region develop, and you know, the patriotic feelings were there, and many diaspora uh, members were actually returning uh, to the region, um, referring to it as a second Dubai in the region and they wanted to put a brick on the wall. Uh, They wanted to contribute to state building as well. And when I conducted interviews with young people um, just a couple of months ago, uh, the, the picture was completely different. So the way they define patriotism has changed. So um, they were underlining that their generation is different uh, from the previous uh, generation and they look at politics in a different way. So I think they were creating a different kind of uh, Kurdish patriotism or nationalism that that, um, um, goes beyond political party affiliations and they were questioning so many things. And uh, uh, for me, it was fascinating to see, Uh, but this is not something pertinent to the the Iraqi Kurdish region. It's happening in different parts of the world as well. So youth are questioning questioning the the elder generation and uh, how they uh, treated politics in a way. So we see that um, um, in in politics, youth are perceived as either the, the receivers of the ruling elite's propaganda and politics, or they are seen as troublemakers. So there was nothing in between, but we see that there's a need. Uh, to talk about youth agency because these people are the future of the region. These people are the future and they will uh, be the ones who will contribute more to state building. So their needs should be heard. And uh, Shiwan and I wrote an article and uh, the title was uh, a quote from one of the interviewees. Uh, she said, they hear us, but they don't listen to us. And uh, looking at the, the, the news uh, articles about the situation in Kurdistan today, we see that many students and many young people are also uh, complaining about that. Politicians hear them but they don't listen to them and they don't uh, build the young people's future. Um, So uh, in in the long run, I mean um, if you look at the Arab Spring, if you look at uh, youth agency in protest movements, we know that uh, young people, when when there's mass mobilization towards protests they can actually rattle existing regimes. I mean this happened in other countries before. Um, In the Middle East in general, I think uh, we have witnessed how youth movements, you know, were important. In Kurdistan, I think uh, the protests are a clear message to the ruling elite. And although um, negotiations are taking place at the moment with, uh, with political leaders and students, I think this is a clear sign uh, that youth want more agency in building their future. And they don't want to do it under uh, political parties. The uh, student movements, for example, want to be independent. And uh, they have a lot of demands that need to be met because um, in the end, if these um, demands are not met and if these problems foster, uh, it might uh, create larger protest groups which would be harder to control and which would uh, bring instability to the region in general. So I stop here. But if you want me to elaborate more, I will definitely do, do it. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Bahar. So so I think we have uh, touched on like several problems and issues in the region and also challenges. Uh, I would like to focus a bit more on what actually can be done. Uh, how can we kind of reverse the development, uh, so to say? I mean, I initially depicted uh, the region as a beacon of hope, uh, as it has been described before. Uh, so, I mean, how can we tackle the challenges and, and the question is directed to all of you actually I don't know if anyone wants to pick it up.
1: I'm happy to go first if, if the ladies don't want to go first. Um, I have actually listed uh, some bullet points because we don't want as scholars and as academics to be only seen to problematize the, uh, the issues but also to provide uh, if there is actually political will and uh, agency to provide also solutions and and and, and recommendations if i may say uh, to what basically what needs to be done moving forward first of all it's very vital to reach out to the youth uh, and a voter force that needs to be reckoned with in the next elections actually next year the kurdistan region is scheduled to have its uh, parliamentary elections last election was in 2018 again it's so a record low turnout. Again, it shows that people are apathetic, but also they have lost faith that elections will bring about any sorts of change. It's more or less the same to political families through their respective uh, political parties that, kind of like Iraq, divide the spoils of governance. And the rest... The political institutions, the uh, governing institutions have all remained kind of at the helm or at the discursion of the uh, ruling political parties. They, they, they don't have any, any agency. So what needs to happen is to reconcile the youth and to be shown that actually elections are important, that there is ways that you can influence and change politics through elections or peaceful means, in other words. Second, there needs to be a strengthening of electoral integrity. Unfortunately, in recent years, the elections in Kurdistan region are at best have been sham and the allegations of voter um, rigging, but also irregularities have tainted and clouded the outcomes of these elections. So this needs to change. The recent elections that Iraq had last month thanks to a lot of technical assistance from the United Nations assistance missions, but also electoral observations from European Union, which was the first time that they would deploy such a mission, by all accounts seems to be the cleanest election that Iraq has had to date since 2003. I'm not not saying that the election has been free of, of issues or shortcomings, but for the large part, it was a very good election and it was held under a new election law that, changed the law from proportional representation with every governorate being a a constituency to Single past the, uh, they called SNT or single non transferable vote that broke the 18 provinces into 83 constituencies in Iraq. The same needs to happen. You can no longer have the Kurdistan region's four provinces under one electoral constituency. You need to break down not only to four, but actually to more. Every district or every sub district needs to be treated as a, as a, as a constituency of itself so that people see. And have a clear person to hold to account as a parliament. So these debates can be happen can be happening between these constituencies and their respective uh, elected MPs, rather than when people don't see any channels of communication, they bring their anger to the street. And of course, the result, as we have seen, is a crackdown on peaceful protests. And again, no no accountability or what uh, whatsoever. See, they need to actually to. Uh, to to engage the youth's waning interest in politics. It's all, and again, not only through their respective political parties, but they actually need to show genuinely that the KRI is open for different voices and different elements and different, for example, I've seen in recent years that some uh, new political parties, you could see splinters emerged from the more dominant political parties, but they all actually uh, proved to be a stifling disappointment. Now we need, uh, more, uh, may, may, maybe even less ideological, but more issue-based political organization. It could be about, uh, about, uh, about, for example, green uh, political parties. I don't know about ecology and about environment. As we have seen, KRI is not uh, is not actually free from the uh, calamities and impacts of climate change. So all of that are some of the things that politically needs to be happening in terms of the most important. Thing that needs to happen is actually how the KRG and how the Kurdish authorities are going to absorb the labor surplus into the job market. This is sacrosanct. If they are failing in doing that, there will always going to be turmoil. There will always going to be unrest and 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 and, 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 and um, angry or violent protests or peaceful protests that actually turned into violence because of the response from the authorities. And this is actually easier said than done, but but there is always a way if there is a political will maybe relinquishing monopoly over the uh, private sector could be could help actually go a long way maybe actually to make sure that the political uh, that the education uh, because we have seen a, a, a huge expansion of higher education in the kurdistan but even the private universities the ones that have been uh, sprunging up after uh, 2006 and seven, they are more or less uh, uh, parroting the same kind of narrative. They are parroting the same official line from the political parties and the establishment. That does not equip the graduates with critical thinking. That does not equip them with the necessary skills that are required in the job market, especially of a liberal private sector. So otherwise, education will be just a paper and a diploma, but doesn't get you anywhere. So relinquishing monopoly over the economy, starting from the private sectors, most lucrative sectors, I would say, but also overhauling the whole education sector that centers on critical thinking and skills that are commensurate to the needs of the job market. And I'm going to stop there and leave it for uh, colleagues to contribute as well.
4: I'm going to hop in very quickly. Um, I think you made some really good remarks, I'm um, The only concern I have is the realistic the realistic outlook of this all actually happening. Because what I think is one of the most important thing that would happen is strengthening civil society, uh, strengthening the political engagement of youth, but also integrating youth within political parties and upping the representation of youth within uh, parliament, within political parties, within uh, uh, constituencies. So all of this needs to happen before we can go to this end phase. And the reality of it is that the development of this, it's a lot to ask. So perhaps one of the first things to start with is indeed uh, focusing on the economic situation and then things will follow from there, hopefully.
0: Thank you. Megan, do you want to say
3: yeah,
2: something? I, I, um, I agree with, with Lana. Um, well, I, I agree with many of the things that, that Siobhan raised. Um, I don't agree with single non-transferable vote that we'll discuss that at another time. But um, you know, I, I think the economic situation is, of course, the most, um, is the most important uh, issue right now, but you know, how do you open up the economy to, uh, to absorb this vast you know, cohort of graduates from Kurdish universities, and also the um, upcoming um, graduating cohort of youth that may or may not be able to go to university have lost years of schooling as a result of strikes uh, as a result of um, shutdowns because of the economic situation and Covid, um, this really puts the Kurdistan region in a very dangerous position where the parties are falling back on what they must ultimately fall back on to stay in power when they lose the confidence of the public and that's coercion. and so it, either through the legal system or as we've seen in you know intermittently. Uh, throughout these more violent protests on their military forces as well. And I think that this is where the international community comes in because it does bear some responsibility for enabling this kind of coercion and also for um, tacitly giving its approval to the types of legal coercion that is being used as well. Um, I think that, you know, and, and this is in a way kind of hard to reconcile when you have states like the United States and the UK experiencing their own democratic backsliding. It makes them less credible as proponents of human rights, um, assuming that they have ever been credible. But it, you know, I, I think that there are certain things that can be done from an international perspective, one of which is making aid conditional on um, being more transparent with, um, procedures, due process procedures, um, you know, following the actual rule of law. Um, You know, there are uh, protections for defendants in Iraqi law, uh, none of which are followed in these more recent trials. Um, Also, the fact that, um, you know, the Kurdistan regional government seems to be using um, U.S. and uh, European-produced weapons without any sort of reaction from um, particularly, particularly the United States, that needs to change as well. Um, it also needs to be explicitly, um, it, governments like the United States, international missions there need to explicitly identify the ways in which um, the Kurdistan region is um, is behaving as, as a uh, sort of reactionary, um, authoritarian regime and um, undermining civil society when it, when it claims to be advancing it. Um, you know, I, I think the European Union, uh, the, uh, the UN and Germany have done a good job at this. Um, I think the US and the UK need to step up here because they are the primary benefactors of the Kurdistan regional government. Um, they need to be more firm because the Kurdistan regional government relies very heavily on PR. And I think that, uh, you know, changing the discussion in that way will put pressure on the Kurdistan region to, um, you know, maybe not open the door to civil society, but back down on its more aggressive practices in pursuing dissidents, um, particularly youth dissidents.
3: Um, May I say a few words as well, or else do we have time?
0: Yes, please.
3: Oh, thank you. Um, so um, uh, thank you so much uh, to other commentators. I'll just uh, add things uh, to, to complement what they just said, perhaps a few more uh, policy recommendations. So um, I would say that uh, we have seen student protests now, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. Actually, there are many people who don't dare to take the streets in different parts of, um, of uh, Kurdistan. But um, uh, we should also, the, the literature shows that uh, youth protests really bring systematic change. So uh, they are symptoms of a situation. They are not um, a solution. So they just show us that there's something wrong that needs to be addressed. And uh, most of the time, youth movements, uh, are, when they are demobilized, it Everything goes back to party politics again, and uh, and you know the, if they are uh, organized under youth branches within parties, the desired outcomes wouldn't come. But on the other hand, is there a civil society in the Kurdistan region that could uh, host uh, large uh, youth movements and uh, and things like that? I just rely on my interviews here, for example, many uh, of the young people I talked to, different university students from four districts, um, they they all agreed that there was more need for um, civil society organizations but at the same time uh, they said it's in the short run they don't believe this would happen so everybody had a save yourself approach in the end so they were trying to go abroad or you know um find ways to to integrate into the system sometimes becoming a cog in the wheel themselves as well because they had no other choice so i think uh, hopelessness was uh, prevailing in the interviews and this needs to be addressed what i would say is that um Many people also mentioned that they consider uh, migrating outside Kurdistan one way or another in the future. Uh, Even for short uh, periods, uh, they want to just uh, go abroad and see the opportunities. So I think that the government needs to do something to reverse this brain drain. And it's not just happening in Kurdistan, even in Turkey, a recent survey showed that 65% of young people want to go abroad. And this this is Turkey. I mean, the whole region is is like this. So uh, something needs to be done. This needs to be addressed because in the future, If if the youth, uh, because of the protests, are treated as a threat to the social order, if if this issue is treated as something that needs to be suppressed in order to go back to status quo, it will not work in the long run. So what needs to be done is to find a solution so that the region does not lose its young people, uh, talented young people who will build the future and who would... um, contribute to state and nation building processes. Uh, So this issue needs to be taken seriously. So agency and participation, these are the two important issues that need to be taken into account. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Bahar. And also thank you to all the uh, listeners who are submitting their questions on Zoom. Our panelists are very uh, good at answering them live uh, as we speak. And watchers on Facebook. Well, I, I hope we can manage, manage to, to paste all the questions and answers to you on Facebook as well. There's one question here that I would like to highlight. It's from Wynne Rogers. Uh, he says, uh, it, "It is, uh, uh, what are some important lines of division within youth in the Kurdistan region? For example, in most recent round of protests, there were not a lot of active solidarity from students from private universities with their public universities in the streets. Beyond this, do you feel that there is is perhaps too much focus on university students, particularly by international community, to the detriment of larger groups of youth in the Kurdistan region? Not sure who wants to pick this up. Maybe Lana or Megan? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I I think that's a really good point. And I think last year in the protest in Soleimani, um, the primary um, drivers of that protest were not actually university students, but it was um, very young teenagers and even children in many respects. Um, And uh, some of the uh, people who had engaged with these protesters had remarked on the fact that other groups of youth protesters and civil servants were actually not turning out to protest because they were afraid of being uh, associated with these younger, more violent, um, more, I think we could say, nihilistic groups of protesters who um, have lost. I, I think this is where we have to bring up the lack of education, um, the fact that many of these children have missed years of schooling. Um, as a result of, um, of the teacher strikes, as a result of the economic situation and of COVID. Um, you know, they are in a situation that, you know, maybe their youth and, and, and experience um, doesn't really permit them to understand all of the ways in which they can express themselves, or they feel that they don't have a way to express themselves through formal channels. Um, because elections don't seem to change much, the political parties are irresponsive or are, are not responsive to public demands. Uh, so they are um, protesting in ways that are very destructive, um, and that these groups of university students um, and older uh, protesters maybe don't want to be associated with people who have a, um, a better understanding of you know the, the political context in which they're working. Um, and the channels that they can use to put pressure on the government. So um, yeah, I think I, maybe not too much emphasis is being put on university protesters, but I think that all these groups of protesters maybe need to be considered and, you know, maybe where their interests lie, their experience, um, and where they might di- diverge in their interests and experience.
4: I can add to that as well. Um, what I think—it's a really great comment. Um, I think Megan said correctly. Fear is one thing. Secondly, perhaps they do not um, um, identify the same uh, issues that the the public university students would have with themselves. Uh, so that could also play a role. Um, and um, I wanted to say one more thing, but I'm going to go back to your question, Win. Um to the detriment of larger groups of youth within the Kara, I mean, we have to understand that perhaps in this, this region there aren't very there aren't many other institutions or networks where these young people can get together and can speak through as feeling part of one place. So I think yes, it is unfortunate, perhaps, but there aren't many other ways of doing this and 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 um, and getting together. And and um, so I I think this is also the the product of of the situation at hand.
2: Thank you. I, I may add to that, too. Um, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, and especially with the crackdowns on social media now. Now, I mean, even for, um, you know, I, I had spoken to people who um, you know, they had related stories to me of people getting arrested or being um, spoken to being warned for even liking a comment on social media. So even social media is not the free uh, forum for political expression that it once was. And a lot of the protest activity on social media is very, um, you know, it's, it's not, it, it, the, the discourses, you know, it, the, the way that people engage on social media is very different than the way that they would engage at a, um, you know, at a symposium um, of you know scholars, uh, for example, the way that, you know, a lot of these political parties used to engage politically. Um, through reviewing Marxist literature and, and whatnot, this is not that kind of thing. This is uh, very, um, this is very action-oriented. So I think that the type of political engagement you're seeing is is different, maybe among these groups than among you know more um, than among the university students, perhaps.
0: Thank you. And maybe for the sake of time, we should. Proceed to another question that also just came in. Uh, I saw that Siobhan already answered the question in text, so, so it, it's available hopefully afterwards as well. Uh, but, but the next question is from Amal uh, Bohoros. So it's, uh, the question is, uh, could you say something on how the geopolitical development and the situation of the Kurds in neighboring countries relates to impacts uh, youth perception and uh, understandings of Kurdish identity in the Kurdistan region, especially as a history of violence under the Bat regime is not a lived reality for them. Uh, maybe Bahar and then Shivan.
3: Okay, thank you so much. I mean, uh, this is an excellent question. I think uh, one of the most important findings of the book, but also uh, the article that's going to be published, uh, quoted with Siobhan, touched upon these issues. For me, it was so fascinating to see how the young generation distinguished themselves from their parents. And we had like interesting quotes where uh, university university students were telling us... um, you know, um, my my father expects me to be grateful for what we have compared to their experience. We our situation is great, but uh, we we are born to this situation now, and we have the right to criticize. So why do uh, the older generation? Why why does the older generation constantly expect us to be grateful? Because we can still change this. There's still so much to uh, to be done. And uh, they, were, uh, they were commenting on uh, how their families um, do not encourage them to, uh, to join protests or, or even criticize uh, Kurdish affairs. They just ask them to, to stay silent and, uh, and uh, uh, compared to the Saddam regime, they are doing great. So for me, it was an interesting finding and uh, we have a lot of quotes that, uh, that underline that. Uh, Apart from that, the regional developments, of course, um, uh, affected youth perception. And uh, they they were saying, you know, it's not just the government, but it's also geopolitics that affect our future. And um, one of them was saying there's always conflict. So every time it's either domestic or international, there's always something. And uh, that's why the government has excuses to focus on other things or prioritize other things, because youth is always pushed back because there are other issues to, to tackle with. And um, so the regional um, environment also uh, puts uh, Kurdistan to the corner, especially economically, etc. I mean, with ISIS and refugee camps and all that. So uh, the youth is always uh, sidelined. And um, I think this this is a very important issue to think about.
0: Thank you, Bahar. Uh, Shulan?
1: yeah i can i can actually say two points to build on bahar's um, uh, excellent contribution and and we, we can see that the current generation unlike its forbears or unlike their parents uh, forbears are actually are more reluctant to uh, to align themselves with the with the current political parties the ruling as well as the opposition parties um to, at, at the moment, which basically the same political parties that has largely left them adrift uh, uh, to, to a lot of um, social economic uh, sufferings. Uh, and, and also that the same at the same time this generation is no longer moved by na- appeals to nationalist grievances or ex- externalizing and exporting problems to Baghdad or or basically the regions, uh, developments uh, in, in general. Uh, and they are not convinced that the external causes uh, are actually the reason for the region's uh, basically shortcomings and failings, but they actually squarely put the blame onto the ruling. Uh, the ruling elite in the Kurdistan region, uh, which for the most part have been in charge since the inception of the of the region, uh, and once they are actually leaving the scene, it's their descendants uh, who have actually take the helm and the baton uh, from them and going forward. So, uh, so this is one point. And the other point, um, if we look into the uh, the ongoing conflicts uh, with, for example, between Turkey and the PKK in northern Iraq in in, in recent years, is actually has taken has actually um, uh, wreaked havoc in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. And to be honest, a lot of the interviewees uh, that I have also talked to uh, see the Kurdish region's uh, political parties as being complicit uh, and not standing up to uh, to basically uh, Turkey's incursions and Turkey's uh, 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 never-ending, basically, uh, military operations, which in recent years actually has... Has led to a lot of uh, depopulation in in the rural areas in the Hogue, but but uh, but also uh, at, at times costed civilian lives that have uh, been caught in the, in the crossfire between uh, between Turkey and the PKK, and at some points actually also uh, uh, skirmishes between the Peshmerga that are affiliated to the KDP, but uh, and with the PKK rebels that that has renewed fears of. Um, civil strife uh, among, among some of these populations in these, in these localities. But all in all, uh, it has affected the identity of the Kurdish youth uh, to, to, for, to a large extent.
0: Thank you, Siobhan. And thank you to the entire panel. We are unfortunately already over time. Uh, I feel this subject was really interesting and it could have been going on for another 90 minutes. Um, so if you're interested in the topic and uh, look forward to to kind of dig deeper into it, I can recommend the book. Uh, you can find a link on UI's website, uh, on the, uh, the we- event websites um, for information where you can order it. Uh, thank you, Megan, Lana, Bahar, and Shivan for this discussion. It was uh, a pleasure of mine uh, and I hope we will be able to get back to this topic later. Thank you.